This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. I'm Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love It podcast. Today, we conclude our five-part series on one of the world's most famous satirists, Jonathan Swift, and his most famous work, Gulliver's Travels. Um, If Swift were alive today, I have no doubt he'd be a podcaster. (laughs) Well, he'd likely have his own Netflix comedy special. I mean, he is irreverent as he is relevant, and those two things make great comedy. Well, in Voyage 1 and 2, um, he attacks our behaviors as societies and how we act as groups. And he attacks partisan politics and governmental corruption and corruption in the name of faith and society's inevitable draw towards gratuitous violence, um, also often in the name of faith. For the most part, uh, but not entirely, Swift discusses things we do as groups, things that are evil but that we justify or perhaps we don't even see. And he begins his attacks on things that he finds foolish that we do in the name of progress or uh, modernity, but it's really understated. In Voyage 3, he unleashes these attacks, and he comes at the institutions. He attacks the academy. He develops an argument that uses the name of academic achievement to dress up our own hollow aspirations, and he goes on to assert that we dress up cruel arrogance and cloak it with the term progress, you know, progress in science and in the progress in the arts, and He claims the elite have their eyes split. One is staring at the stars, the other staring at themselves. And this perception is so off that everything they do ends up being done poorly. I mean, it's really ill-conceived and really (laughs) ill-executed. And an interesting picture to have in your mind, really. But, uh, you know, you haven't even mentioned my favorite part yet. He further claims... That the elite class is so distracted looking at the stars as well as themselves that they require literally to be slapped in the face just to focus long enough to have a conversation with another human being. 
They hire people to constantly slap them every few minutes because just after a few minutes, their attention is off either upwards or inwards. I mean, it's so funny. It's a great picture, really. And a service, I think flapper services might be something we could we could use today <laughs> if we weren't harsh enough. He claims that while looking progressively into abstractions that likely we'll never realize, these same elites simultaneously and numbly oppress people, the people that they deem to be less educated, less affluent, less cultured, lesser in any way. And by lesser, I mean physically lesser. They live on a lower plane below them. I'll tell you what. I promise right now that if I ever become uh, internationally famous and wealthy beyond my wildest dreams, you need a flapper. I will hire a face <laughs> slapper so that I can stay in a real world. Oh, my uh, you know, gosh. Well, uh, we don't want to forget that he starts the voyage off with an inside joke targeting Reformed Protestants, basically calling them heretics. Oh, yes, uh, uh, for sure. I mean, he is, what do they call that when you offend everyone? Uh, He's an same? equal opportunity offender. An equal opportunity offender. Because Swift broadens the people he's trying to offend in Voyage 3, and it gets harsher. True. In Voyage 3, if you consider yourself in leadership at all, you should feel insulted at some level. Uh, and his insults to women as a group are more obvious in each voyage, and I notice that you haven't made much of that, which is unusual for you. No, I mean, I really haven't. And the reason is, you know, when Swift insults women, I don't know why, but it just doesn't feel patronizing. I mean, he does mock women for sure, but he's offending everyone. The attacks on women don't feel any worse to me, uh, and honestly, they're, they're kind of funny. Uh, a good satirist, and that's so. what's so crazy about good satire, they know how to insult you, and you can just take it. And of course, this brings us to the most abrasive and the most famous voyage. In fact, this is what we call juvenalian humor, for sure. Juvenalian? Wow. What, I mean, what is that? Yeah, well, basically, and this is an uber simplification, but there are two Latin guys that get the credit for creating satire. A guy named Horace and a guy named Juvenal. Horace was funny, Juvenal was mean, and Swift goes from one to the other. Uh, in Voyage 1, it's indulgent, witty. Voyage 4, we're talking sarcastic, he's biting, mean, but it's more serious. It doesn't, it's not funny anymore. You know, we know, we feel the difference of the sarcasm when we hear it. Uh, Animal Farm, that's a good example of Juvenalian satire, because he's not, I mean, it's not really funny. So, in Voyage 4, Swift attacks our essence as humans. It mocks, this voyage mocks our ability to feel and express passion. He attacks our ability to reason and our inability to balance passion and reason. And these, you know, he sees these as warring forces within our souls. And that, of course, comes from his Christian worldview. It's taken right out of the writings of St. Paul. Critics have argued for years whether Gulliver speaks for Swift as he advocates for a world run by reason. And critics ask if Gulliver's opinions are Swift's opinions about the world or is Swift attacking people like Gulliver? Is Gulliver supposed to be us, the reader? I know it's a little bit confusing, but in a nutshell, is Swift attacking Gulliver and we're Gulliver in this scenario? Because Gulliver is clearly nuts. 
Well, we've been stressing that Gulliver, Gulliver is gullible, which is even you know kind of difficult to say. It doesn't stand to reason, at least to me, um, that he would see himself as gullible. So it makes more sense that Gulliver's views are not swift views, but things he believes we believe just taken to an extreme. No, I agree. I mean, Lemuel Gulliver is definitely no biblical Lemuel, as in King Solomon of the Bible. Gulliver is wise in his own eyes, but not in Swift's eyes, and certainly not in our eyes. Gulliver is gullible, but he also goes crazy. He's not wise. He's everything we should be wary of in some way. However, having said all that, there is this sense that Swift does include him in the group of people that he's willing to mock. I think we can say that Swift sees some of himself in Gulliver. It's likely, and I want to put it this way, he doesn't want to be Gulliver. I want to see things more clearly than Gulliver sees. I want to have balance in my life. I want to be not so driven that I want to climb up these social hierarchies so much so that I abandon my family. But I can't. I am him. And perhaps you are too. (laughs) So you're saying Swift is and is not Gulliver. It's a paradox. Mm. And of course, a paradox is an idea that doesn't seem like it could be true on first pass. But the longer you think about it, it does make sense. I mean, Swift claims, and I hope we can make his case for him, that we are both Yahoo and Winum or Huinum or however you want to say that. Um, When we have the negative traits of both of these species that he's going to introduce here in Voyage 4, humans, even at our best, do not make sense, and we don't see our faults almost ever. He starts off with this quote, I continued at home with my wife and children about five months in a very happy condition if I could have learned the lesson of knowing when I was well. You know, one thing about humans, we don't learn our lessons vicariously, do we? We often don't even learn our lessons the hard way. Let's look just at the beginning. Why in the world is Gulliver leaving his family again? He's already abandoned them three times for these foreign trips. He's already has abandoned his family for years uh, no, I'd, I'd say we often don't. And I want to point out that if we read some of Swift's letters to other people, especially the famous ones like the one to Alexander Pope, where he said he hates tribes of men, but he loves individuals, uh, we see that over the course of Swift's life as he grew older, he learned to love people just as they are, not necessarily expecting or requiring or maybe even wanting them to be more reasonable. Um, You know, in one letter to Thomas Sheridan, he says this, Expect no more from man than such an animal is capable of, and you will every day find my description of yahoos more resembling. (laughs) Terrible. You know, when Gulliver arrives uh, at this island, he meets human-looking creatures, but they are obviously not humans. They are yahoos. They look like us physically, but they lack one very basic human characteristic. They are totally irrational. They have no ability to reason. Uh, In fact, they seem to have less ability to reason than household pets in our world and who at least, you know, know, they know when to turn down bad food. Uh, The Yahoos are the total and full expression of unrestrained passion. 
in all of its forms, like rage and lust and greed and gluttony. and um, They're all those things, and they can't be tamed, and they are pretty disgusting. Well, he does create a totally negative description of them. But I will say, if you notice, they do live in community. That is their redemption. Uh, but they're fiercely loyal to each other to the point that Gulliver is kind of afraid of them at times, uh, which I point out is something that you can't say that Gulliver is. I mean, he is definitely not living in community or loyal to his. Swift is suggesting, even here at the beginning, that we are both Yahoo and Hwinnom in mild form. We have the negative traits of each species. Look at Gulliver here. He leaves his wife and she's pregnant. That's terrible and not loyal. He takes a job as a ship captain. He loses one man to pride, a bit of irony there. He loses another to disease, which again, more irony, he is a doctor. Then he is forced to hire buccaneers. Those are his words. They were, and I quote, rogues when I had picked up debauched my other men and they all formed a conspiracy. Gulliver is betrayed by greedy people. Everything he is and has experienced is an expression of things that have gone wrong with humans. His arrival on this island is not an accident. It's treachery. It's an act of human violence. It's greed. His men mutiny and abandon him, and it's all pretty terrible. Gulliver walks down the road after arriving in this unknown world, and he sees these creatures these yahoos and his response is to attack them he's and he engages the first expression of life that he sees with his own act of violence i want to quote him here i drew my hanger and gave him a good blow with the flat side of it a hanger is like a knife for i dust not strike with the edge fearing the inhabitants might be provoked against me if they could come to know that i had killed or maimed one of their cattle and, of course, he calls the Yahoo cattle because he has no other word to call them. My point being, for all of Swift's rantings about bad politicians and bad scientists and bad women, Swift is very well aware that he has his own personal demons. We are all Gulliver. And as we get to the end, Gulliver is less the purveyor of Swift's attacks. And he's going to transition to be more of the target himself. In this final section, Swift really plays around with the complexity of the human experience because we're not just one thing and we can't really be cured. <laughs> Which to me seems uh, such a dark, dark point of view for someone who spent so much time writing satire. Swift doesn't think we're capable of changing um, he really doesn't think almost anyone can be capable of seeing fault in themselves, and uh, I'm really not sure uh, why he wrote uh, in the preface to uh, Tale of a Tub. He says this, Satire being leveled at all is never reasoned for an offense by any, since every individual persona makes bold to understand it of others and very wisely removes his particular part of the brethren upon the should of the world which are road enough and able to bear it, if you can follow that thought, meaning that we all read satire and we all wisely understand that it's not directed at us. It's always directed at everybody but us. <laughs> exactly. We read satire. We absolutely agree that what the satire is saying is absolutely true. It just doesn't apply to me. I don't do that. 
You do that. He's talking about you, Gary. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks. But but think about it. Who better than a preacher who goes to a pulpit week after week trying to get people to reform? I mean, when I listen to a sermon at Church of Christian, I'm always sure that they're talking about you and oh. not me. Oh, <laughs> Well, we're jesting, uh, but it's true. All of us remove ourselves from criticism, and we can acknowledge that that's a problem. And I would like to point out that this is a very common psychological phenomenon to do that. <laughs> you know, at another time, Swift will say this: uh, "No preacher is listened to but time. How is it possible to expect that mankind will take advice when they will not so much as take a warning?" Uh, when Swift describes Gulliver's travels as being admirable things and will wonderfully mend the world what he means is i can write the most absurd things and we can all absolutely agree with everything i'm saying but it doesn't matter we won't reform there will always be pride there will always be corruption there will always be violence and in that way we are and always will be yahoos and then we wonder why he's called a misanthrope i mean that is such a cynical way to think about people I mean, and he is cynical. I mean, in that same letter that you quoted before, this is one of my favorite quotes. He says this, drown the world. I'm not content with despising it. <laughs> mm, that, that's taking it to another level. Well, I mean, it is, but it's not just anger. I mean, what we see here is passion. He's full of rage. Swift is a yahoo. When his buddy Pope complimented Gulliver's travels when he read it, Swift declined the compliment. He said this, what I do is owing to perfect rage and resentment and the mortifying sight of slavery, folly, and baseness about me. So he's saying, my Yahoo comes out and it expresses itself as anger and I hate that I'm an angry person. I don't want to be, but I am. I want to read another quote and I know I'm, I'm going heavy on the quotes, but he said this about himself. Nothing can well be more mortifying to reflect that I am of the species with creatures capable of uttering as so much scurrility, dullness, falsehood, and impertinence to the scandal and disgrace of human nature. <laughs> I love using the word scurrility for scurrilous. Oh I mean, gosh. isn't that great? Uh, I can see why he's hard on himself, but wouldn't we say if what makes you angry is slavery, folly, and baseness, aren't you a good person? And that's what we might call righteous anger? Yes. I mean, I think many of us would say that, but I don't think Swift is one of those people. <laughs> I mean, if you look at the Wynnums, that's my horse sound, here in Voyage 4, Gulliver clearly admires them. And I'm going to go so far to say that Swift clearly admires them. But what does he admire about them? Uh, that he likes that they can keep it together. The Wynnums are horses. And everyone who's ever been around horses, even a little bit, and that's me. I've only been around them a little bit. But even I know that horses are noble creatures. I mean, they're big. They're powerful. They're graceful. And Swift, in his life, absolutely loved them. But here, the Wynnums are more than just horses. They are totally ruled by reason. They do have faults, and we're going to get to those. But Gulliver likes them because they never lose their minds, ever. They're always fully in control and always make every decision based on reason. Swift would say, I see my humanity and my inability to control my anger. But unbridled passion expresses itself in many ways. All of them may be driven by self-interest, and, and that's what he rails at the most in all four voyages. 
our pride and its blinding effect on us. And this will be the last quote. In Tale of the Tubs, he says this. Bring your own guts to a reasonable compass. I know that's a weird thing to say. And I had to think about it for a long time because it's metonymy. It's metaphorical for, you know, the rhetorical scholars. But what he means is we have to bring ourselves, our guts, to our pursuit of direction. Let me say it this way. We can't follow the advice of the compass if we don't bring our guts into it. Does that make sense? I mean, it's such a funny thing to say, but I do agree with it. Yeah, you know, interesting it is, and it seems Gulliver uh, doesn't have a good compass. No. <laughs> not physically. Uh, he's only circled the globe, but here at the end, uh, you know, not metaphorically either. But in the last few chapters of the book where Gulliver claims to be living totally on the basis of reason, we find that Gulliver has gone crazy by almost any standard. He, he has to be restrained from jumping overboard by the threat of change. He can't be around his family. He spends hours talking to horses. He's so vain he cannot condescend to participate in British community. He's petty. He's mean. He also swears to being entirely honest. Yeah, yet that's, that's what I find odd. He identifies with Simon, the famous liar of Troy, who talks to Trojans into accepting, of all things, a Trojan horse, or should we say a Trojan whim? <laughs> I mean, that's a pretty clever little joke, and we're left to wonder, you know, who's Gulliver lying to here at the end, if not himself? And I would like to throw in one other psychological note. There's a guy who's the king of the AP psychology world named David G. Myers. He's written a book called Intuition, and in that book, they did brain studies of people who had the parts of their brains that were damaged that managed mostly emotions. And so these people were left completely to reason. They were very rational, Spock-like people. And what they found out in the research, they made horrible, terrible decisions. And so you need both sides of the brain to make it work. Well, you know, it's all very clever. And, and the idea that, you know, Swift kind of brings that idea like what you're saying with this Greek allusion, this Greek allusion to Sinon, the liar of Troy, brings us to the Winhams in Part Four. If Gulliver is not a good person who can make good decisions, and he's basically turned himself into a horse, what is it about the Winhams that Gulliver is mocking? I mean, they don't lie, they don't steal, they all work hard, they never shaft each other. How could any of these things, how could this species be compared to a Trojan horse that the Greeks used to destroy the Trojans? You know, as you pointed out, Swift has done nothing but praise the wisdom and greatness of the ancients. And aren't the ancients in many ways like the Wynnum community? I mean, Swift spends three voyages building his case, and it's not hard to do. Uh, that humans are petty, corrupt, we're blind to our pride, we're competitive, we're violent, we're self-serving. And I don't think anybody would disagree with that. I mean, we are all of those things. <laughs> Even here, we see more of that. I mean, the yahoos who look like us are naked, they're dirty, they're hairy and totally feral. Uh, why would there be any reference to a Trojan horse a horse of all things that has come to represent, you know, deception for over a thousand years. Uh, in what way could a species that doesn't even have a word for deception or a lie really ever be deceptive or the thing that is not? Exactly. And that's the question that we 
arrive at. So let's look at the mighty Wyndhams. I mean, it's easy to see what's wrong with the yahoos. They wear their flaws on their, you know, hairy, naked, unrestrained, feral bodies. I like but, the word feral. <laughs> but what about the Wyndhams? Gulliver, if we recall, you know, wherever he goes, he strives to imitate whatever culture he's in. Uh, I, by the way, do the same thing. Well, aren't we all supposed to? Hence that famous phrase, when in Rome, do as the Romans. <laughs> as much as uh, you might love McDonald's if you're in Paris, though, get the quiche. So true. <laughs> Just be a good citizen of the world. Well, exactly. And learn the language. And Gulliver does that, too. I mean, he, he's impressive like that. I mean, he's learned every language from every land. He enters into the culture. He's copied the mannerisms of the Lilliputians as well as the Brogdon dads. He, I mean, he's not keen on the Lilliputians, obviously, but he studied and admired all of the different governments. So he's not a novice here, and in many ways, and after all of his admiration and after all of his study, he is impressed by this group, the Wyndhams, the most. So what's impressive about them? There's a lot to admire. I think, first of all, you know, it's a drama-free land. Look at their maxim, to cultivate reason and to be wholly governed by it. Well, this is the opposite of the yahoos. They are the complete expression of what it means to be totally selfish and totally unrestrained. I mean, if the yahoos had a motto, which they don't, but it would be something like, Whatever you feel, that's what you should express and do. They have no self-monitoring behaviors of any kind. They have no limitations on their sexual behavior, specifically. They show no restraint when it comes to food or pursuit of possessions or anything. Yahoo's express no guilt, no shame, no limits, no hygiene. Winnums are the opposite. They value strength in males, good looks or comeliness as they call it in females. They pair up sexually solely to make finer physical specimens. Everything is restrained, calculated, and on purpose. Marriage is arranged as one of the necessary actions of a reasonable being. That's a quote. To prevent overpopulation, couples cease to have intercourse after they produce a foal of each sex. If someone loses a foal, Another couple will donate one to replace it. Marriage is reasonable, and I quote, not upon account of love, but to preserve the race from de de denigrating. So sexual appetite is totally non-existent, or if it is, if it does exist, it's certainly not indulged in any way. Winnens are just friendly, and they're good to each other. They're polite. They're courteous. The kind of people you'd love to have as neighbors because... Their property is always clean and perfectly groomed. <laughs> well, maybe they'd also be the sort of people that would report you to the homeowners association if you were too loud after 10 p.m. Oh, I think they for sure would do that. I mean, they love, quote, everybody, if you want to call it that, but no one gets preferential treatment for any reason. They, quote, love strangers. They think of them just as much as they do their own children. Let me quote them. A stranger is equally treated with the nearest neighbor. Wyndhams don't have personal friends. No one is singled out. This is a completely privilege-free land. Perfection is what is driven for. They hold all things in common. And no one takes advantage of that. They all do the exact same amount of work required them. They don't hoard. 
Uh, I mean, this isn't in the text, but I can imagine in this community, nobody litters, nobody cuts each other off in traffic. I mean, they don't even seem to have or want individual identities. They don't even have personal names. They act only in the best interest of the group. They don't suffer when someone close to them dies. The surviving members are immediately provided for with a replacement family member. I mean, it's all stoic. Gulliver, as philosopher, finds this to be utopia. None of the problems other societies have occur here. Basically, basically Gulliver, you know, he has to leave what we would consider a modern society of the Lilliputians because of conflict. And I would say that the Lilliputian society looks the most like ours of any of them. So he goes to the Brogdendags, and that's a primitive society, but he can't survive there. And again, I'm not sure I could have pulled it off either. He hates the inefficiency and the cruelty of the progressive society or the scientific Laputians. It's passive aggressive and cruel. But now he's found utopia. Everything works. Everything's in harmony. Everything's in perfect peace. All it took was for there to be no humans. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking for the introverts of the world, I think I know how people would go for this. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think I've seen those T-shirts on Etsy. Like, I think there's an actual line of fashion called I Hate People. <laughs> <laughs> True. Uh, and even though Etsy's fairly new, the ideas of the Wynnum world are ancient. I mean, just that word utopia is a historical illusion. Um, Sir Thomas More, or St. Thomas More, depending on which title you prefer, in 1615, he published a book called Utopia, which is where we get that word from, because in it he outlined a so-called perfect society. It's also satire, and obviously that book came out 100 years before Swift, uh, but of course, More isn't the only one to comment on this idea that we can or cannot create a perfect society. Uh, utopian societies flourish in England as well as in America all throughout the Victorian era. And, uh, and it wasn't in books, it was in real life. I mean, communes emerged on both continents where everyone had everything in common, often including their spouses. Oh my. By sharing everything, uh, supposedly greed is abolished and peace abounds. And heck, that's pretty much what they tried to do in Woodstock Woo! in 1969. <laughs> uh, but if we go back before Woodstock and the 19th century, communes even before utopia by Moore, um, we see that Plato made a run at building a utopia in his work, The Republic. And this Wynnum society looks a lot like Plato's Republic. And in fact, the, the Wynnums would make perfect citizens in Plato's hmm. Republic. The, they wouldn't horse around, by the way. <laughs> They're ruled entirely by reason. In Plato's Republic, private interest is always eliminated in favor of the common interest. Marriages work exactly like they do here. You know, in reality, homogeneity is the key to Plato's Republic, and it's really the same here at this point in the book. Uh, they are Stoics. Feelings don't play into anything. Uh, it's the embodiment of pure reason. Um, I thought it was interesting that not only do they not have a word for lying, they don't understand the concept even of an opinion. I mean, that doesn't exist. And uh, we must all be the same in our thinking. There can be no diversity of thought of any kind. There's only correct thinking and incorrect thinking. <laughs> and thus we create 
our utopia. I've had teachers like that. Yeah. Well, differences of thought create conflict, and we want stability. Uh, it sounds good, but really the subtext in, in all these utopian novels is that it's ultimately tyranny, even if it's coded in niceness and virtuous talk. And Plato's Republic, the philosopher's rule, and the military class controls the stability. On the outside, it is perfect. And if I understand this correctly, Gulliver, who is gullible, sees it as perfect. But maybe Swift does not. Yeah, I think that that's where we're going. I mean, look at the other side of the coin, though. The Yahoo, for sure, is the most powerful symbol in the entire book. I mean, this symbol is so strong, it stood out to turn into one of the Internet's first search engines. It's named after him. I mean, the word Yahoo is part of our vernacular. It represents, uh, in many ways, the bestial elements in our humanity. Freud called it our id. Um, some people call it our libido. The Bible calls it the flesh. But there's something to the Yahoo, you know, that's really real. And when Gulliver looks at it on display with no restraint at all, he recoils with horror. Some of the descriptions are really funny. Uh, the physical descriptions are gross, and of course the Yahoo smell, but they're unteachable. They're lazy. They fight over shiny stones that have no practical value. I can do that. <laughs> they devour everything that comes their way, whether they're hungry or not. They drink a lot of alcohol, and they chew on you know some drug that sounds like a kind of reasonable pot, something like that. But my favorite descriptions has to do with the women. I mean, these are mean girls. They're flirtatious. They tease boys. They bully each other. It's very sexually aggressive. Sounds like a movie that's been made. <laughs> oh, more than once. Well, you know, and let's not forget that he picks on redheads. He so does. He actually says, and I quote, redheads of both sexes are more libidinous and mischievous than the rest whom yet they have much exceed in strength and activity. I mean, it's so terrible and ridiculous. And what, are, what did the redheads do to deserve that? <laughs> I know. They've been getting it for years. Uh, we can't forget that not only uh, do we see these vivid illustrations of, of Wynnums and Yahoos, Gulliver also describes Europeans, and the Wynnums get to assess us. And what stands out the most, and of course we don't have time to go in all the description of the Europeans, but it's clear that we have an insatiable propensity toward violence at every level. <laughs> you know, again, Swift witnessed the aftermath of war and violence all of his life and never saw anything that justified it. You know, true. knowing that, though, and it's not surprising to see Swift have Gulliver's master arrive at the conclusion from Gulliver's descriptions that Europeans, and by Europeans he means us, people that have reason but are yahoos, we're worse than yahoos because we have reason. And against all reason, we choose violence. You know, when he talks about the violence in our world, he uses this technique called defamiliarization. He describes violence as if we didn't know what he was talking about. We hear him talk about soldiers and how we have people that are paid to kill other people that they don't know and they don't have any reason to do it and they just do it anyway. We understand what they're talking about. We also know that's what happens in war. Of course, it's crazy, but you know it's also more complicated than that. Or is it? I mean, isn't that the question in the subtext? Um, why are we doing all these terrible things to each other? Oh, yeah, and it gets 
you know, goes crazier than that. The descriptions of the inbred elite people and, and corrupted lawyers. I mean, it's really kind of funny. But it boils down to the idea that with our ability to reason, we should do better than what we do. But we've corrupted our reason, and so we are worse than the stupid animalistic brutality of animals like you might see in the Serengeti or somewhere. I mean, no one blames cats for chasing rats or squirrels. We don't blame lions for eating antelopes. So the point being, it's more dangerous to be us than to be a Yahoo because we're not animals. We should have a sense of morality. Gulliver, of course, agrees with this and then begins to hate his own people. And thus we see he earns his name Gulliver because he is gullible. He's gullible because he can't sort out or judge or really understand what he's seeing. He actually accepts, and this is in a land where they have no dishonesty or lies, but he's going to accept two lies about the world that are embedded in this Swinom culture. The first lie is that reason alone is enough to create a livable society, and it's not. It may be enough to create a peaceful society, but Dr. King teaches us that not all peace is a positive peace, and I would argue that what they have is not a positive peace. The second lie that Gulliver believes is that humans are yahoos, and we're not yahoos. Swift quickly reminds us that we're not the minute Gulliver is rescued because he's rescued by the kindest and most noble character in the entire book, Dom Pedro. I am interested in talking about Dom Pedro and the rest of what happens to Gulliver when he goes home because I know these are very important ideas uh, coming together in many ways that, that really unify all the disconnected ideas in the book. But we cannot leave Winnemland before talking about how the Winnems want what they want to do with the Yahoos. And I find this is so fascinating from a historical sense and absolutely think this is likely what drew in George Orwell to this book. The Winnems come very close to using the phrase final solution. You, you cannot help but think of the Nazis when we see how they reasonably handled unwanted people. And, and this is where Christian values conflict with uh, the greatest with reason, uh, you know, may, to them it appeared reasonable to get rid of imperfect people, unwanted people, even bad people. Um, it is un, it is reasonable that the group is more important than individual, and the yahoos are definitely disgusting, so why not exterminate all of them, especially if you could do it humanely? I mean, that would be the reasonable, logical, winning thing to do. <laughs> Well, and that's the conclusion that Gulliver agrees with by the end of the voyage. And I quote, When I thought of my family, my friends, my countrymen, or the human race in general, I considered them as they really were, yahoos in shape and disposition, perhaps a little more civilized and qualified with the gift of speech, but making no other use of reason to improve and multiply those vices whereof their brethren in this country had only the share that nature allotted them. When I happened to behold the reflection of my own for in a lake or a fountain, I turned away my face in horror and detestation of myself and can better endure the sight of a common yahoo than of my own person. That's the lie. Gulliver comes to accept the Wynnum's assessment of him because for all of our faults, and we have faults, but we're not yahoos. Swift reminds us this. That's where I'm going immediately. 
Gulliver, after he's discarded like garbage from the Winhams, from their world, he's picked up by a Portuguese sailor. And Don Pedro, by the way, is a successful ship captain, and Gulliver is a failed one. Even Gulliver admits, and I quote, that Don Pedro's whole deportment was so obliging, added to the very good human understanding that I could tolerate his company. Isn't that obliging of him? Don Pedro offers Gulliver arguments for why he needs to go home to his family. Don Pedro understands that we are better when we have human connections, when we have connections to people, when we have connections to places. Don Pedro cares for Gulliver. Of course, Gulliver endures his embrace when they depart as he can't stand the touch of even or the smell of I humans. Mean, he's so arrogant. Gulliver has become ridiculous. I mean, he imitates the Winhams by trotting like a horse and even neighing like a horse. And uh, even after five years, he finds the smell of humans offensive so much that he always keeps his nose stuffed with rue, lavender, or tobacco leaves. Uh, he can't bear the touch of his wife and children, and you know, and his best friends are the two horses. There's just so much irony here. You know, at the beginning of the book, we see that preface, and his cousin and publisher, Simpson, tells the reader in the intro that Gulliver lives retired but in good esteem among his neighbors. I mean, this has got to be a kind description. I mean, he's a lot kinder, Simpson is, than the prideful Gulliver because Gulliver looks down on everyone else. Gulliver, in an attempt to find perfection, has completely given up on people and what it means to be human. You know, another point of irony uh, is that in every voyage, Swift points out that Gulliver hates being laughed at. But here we have to know that everyone in town is laughing at the man because he trots around like a horse, thinking himself better and superior to everyone else. And his pride has turned him into a laughing stock, and the joke is on him. And, you know, I've said this many times about relationships. You can be right, and you can be alone, and that's exactly what Gulliver has done. True. And, of course, that's how we conclude this ironic sermon by Ireland's most famous preacher. You can be right, and you can be alone. (laughs) So embrace your brother, your sister, your friend, imperfections and all, diversity of thought and all, and most of all, please avoid violence. Use your reason to figure it out, knowing we're all just a little bit Yahoo, and that's okay. (laughs) There is no doubt that Swift will always be relevant. and So thanks for being with us today. Uh, We hope you've enjoyed this series on one of the English language's greatest pieces of satire. As always, we ask, please share about us with a friend, text them an episode, post a link on social media. Please help us grow. And of course, if you're an educator, check out our free listening guides on our website at howtolovelitpodcast.com. And also, while you're there on our website, you can get a t-shirt, mug, kitchen magnet, all kind of things. Thanks again. Peace out.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.